just think it's really fun when contemporary psychology connects with stoicism and you know, it just makes me feel like oh, I'm, I'm triangulating in on the nature of human existence and reality through different points and different contexts because I don't think Kahneman is a Stoic or is you know certainly not based in ancient Greek philosophy. Welcome to Stoic Conversations. In this podcast, Michael Tremblay and I discuss the theory and practice of Stoicism. Each week, we'll share two conversations, one between the two of us, and another will be an in-depth conversation with an expert. Today, Michael and I are discussing the book Thinking Fast and Slow. But before we do that, I should say that we are enrolling for our course, our three-week course, beginning October 23rd. We've had a number of students sign up already, which we are excited about and still have room for more. So if you're at all interested, please go to stoameditation.com slash course. We'd love to have you. And here is our conversation. Welcome to Stoa Conversations. My name is Caleb Monteveros. And I'm Michael Trombley. And what are we going to be talking about today, Michael? Today is a book book review, book a discussion of, of sorts. We'll be talking about Thinking Fast and Slow by Daniel Kahneman, which is a popular science book, but also quite technical, that digs into the way that our minds work, really, the way that we perceive information. Some interesting facts about, I would say, psychological descriptions and, and of the mind, contemporary research in that area. So that was a, that's, a, that's a book that, I, that I've been reading recently, and I wanted to dig into that because I think it's great and really interesting. And then also the parallels between that. So this is contemporary psychology, the parallels between that and ancient Stoicism, because I think, you know, I think there's some things that, that Kahneman's arguing for here that are a bit different than the Stoics, but I think his actual description of the mind is pretty similar to the one that the Stoics provide. And his lingo, we'll talk about this in the episode, talks about, you know, system one and system two, and well, I think that graphs on pretty well, actually, to Stoic psychology, Stoic philosophy of mind, and then has some implications for Stoic ethics as well. So contemporary psychology book, how it, how it relates to ancient philosophy or ancient Stoic philosophy of mind, hopefully pulling up the understanding of both of those, and then some interesting relationships, parallels, contrasts between the two of those. That's, that's what we have planned for today. Yeah, yeah, nice. Yeah, so Daniel Kahneman, he's a pioneer. He's one of the founding fathers, I suppose, of behavioral economics. He really started to push forward some of the work in psychology on cognitive biases. And one theme of his work that makes him a perfect fit for Stoics to think about is I think ultimately he's thinking about questions about like how does the human mind work and how can humans use these models of the mind to make better decisions and come to correct beliefs. So it's at that uh, point where he's focused on coming up with an accurate theory about the world, but also one that's instrumental for thinking better. Yeah, I think that's exactly right, Caleb. Like you think of this analogy, I mean, I always do a lot of sport analogies here. So there's, there's one sense in which you want to understand the way the body works just you know, knowledge for its own sake. This is fun. It's kind of interesting. But then, you know, if I if I understand more about you know, nu- 
how nutrition works, how muscle formation works, I can then use that to be a better athlete, right? And that's, 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 I think you're exactly right why this should be of interest to people listening is we have this contemporary research into models of the mind, but then that helps us stop doing negative things. So it helps us identify why we commit biases, why we make mistakes and try to intervene there. And then it helps us actually, you know, not just, not just stop mistakes, but go out and perform better, think better, engage with the world better. And, you know, if you're listening to this podcast, the Stoics argue that, you know, virtue is knowledge. What matters is that we understand the world as it really is. We perceive things accurately. That's a big part of being a good person. It's a big part of living well. And for the Stoics, it's the, it's the only part, that knowledge part. So, you know, anything, anything that has to do with, with that is helpful. But this conversation, you know, this book itself, it, it's more than just like, here are the 10 cognitive biases people fall into and here's, you know, watch out. It's more than that because it provides a foundation for an understanding of why the mind works in a way that leads to these kinds of biases. So I'm going to spend more time in there than the actual biases themselves. Um, yeah, as you pointed out, Kahneman's a, a leading figure in behavioral economics, Nobel Prize winner, professor at Princeton. So really one of the top leaders in contemporary psychology. And I, I read this book because I, I, I had some friends, some coworkers recommended, and I wanted to see what contemporary psychology had to say. But it also really interested in that m- contemporary model of the mind and how that c- conflicts with Stoicism, because I find that Stoic model of the mind works so well. But yeah, so, so stick around. We're going to dig into it. Anything else you want to say before, before we, we jump in? Uh, what I should say is that as a bit of, by way of introduction, I must confess, I have not read this book. I have listened to many interviews with Daniel Kahneman. I've read some of his papers, but Michael's going to be sort of driving the main content extraction, or that's not the right word, the main main force of this. I am, I am out here because... extracting content at an incredibly efficient rate, Caleb. Game and so, the, if it, yeah, you did the and, you did the digging, and I get to profit. Yeah, and if I get it, if there's anything wrong, as Caleb's pointed out, it's my fault. If there's anything, <laughs> if there's any misunderstandings, and you send us an email and say, "Look, you've got you know you 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 misinterpreted it," that's me. That's not Caleb. So don't don't worry. Great. So so to kick things off, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a quick summary of the book or or, or my takeaways of what I think is really takes up the first part of the book. The first part of the book is this is this mental model of how the mind works. And then the second part of the book is the implications. Well, why does that lead to mistakes and reasoning or thinking? And he talks about, you know, Kahneman explicitly frames this book as being a kind of water cooler book. Like I want to leave people with, with interesting tidbits of knowledge or perceptions that they can share with each other in common conversation. So what is that model or what is that main argument of the book that then the biases are grounded in or our mistaken thinking comes from? Well, the main argument is that we have two modes of thinking as human beings. We have system one and system two. And so system one is low attention and low effort, and it's responsible for quick and snap judgments. And system two is high attention and effort, and it's responsible for deliberate consideration. And system two is often associated with the subjective experience of agency, choice, and concentration. So when you feel like, oh, I'm, I'm deliberating, I made a choice. That's that's almost always system two, because that's that's the actual experience of sitting down, thinking, considering options. System one is going to be much quicker than that. And so system one tasks are 
you know, turning towards a loud noise. I live in Toronto and they're currently, they're currently flying jets over my building constantly as part of an air show for the CNE here. And every time that happens, I kind of stop and I look towards it. It just, it like breaks through my concentration. And that's system one saying, hey, what's going on over here? System one is answering two plus two equals pause, dramatic pause. Everybody instantly thinks four. You're not actually doing the math in the moment. You just kind of memorize that. So two plus two equals four. Driving a car on an empty road, that's a sensation where you really know where you're going. You kind of zone out. Next thing you know, you're home because you drive home this way every time. And detecting hostility in someone's voice. So kind of subconsciously picking up emotions or, you know, I guess that when people kind of talk about like a vibe check or a gut check or this, something kind of feels off, that's happening that really... I would say I don't. I, I'm cautious to say subconscious because that's not the language Kahneman uses, and I'm I'm not a psychologist, so I can't. But I would say it's not an effortful attention level, something that you're noticing without a lot of purposeful attention. Now, system two, on the other hand, this is when you apply that attention. It's high effort, high attention, and this is when you focus on the voice of a particular person in a noisy room. So you know, everybody's talking, and you're trying to trying to tell what the person you're talking to at a party is saying. When you fill out a tax form. When you check the validity of an argument, so someone pre presented an argument and you have to say, well, is this a sound argument? Is this a valid argument? Or when you compare two washing machines for overall value, so you have to deliberate between a, a, a lot of different criteria when you're judging, is this washing machine better than this other one for the amount of money I'm going to be paying for it? These are all examples from the book, by the way. So some, you know, that's just off the bat, system one, system two. Anything you want to add, Caleb, before we go further? Well, just a quick example. So I was playing poker earlier this weekend, playing poker with some friends. And I think in poker, you get to see both of these forms of thought. So system two might be when you're like, I have this hand. This is what is on the board. Given that the pot size is this large and the other person bet this amount, then you know, you could do basically do some math. This was what would, would be rational for me to do in this situation, given my hand and the probability that my hand is going to, you know, be better than the other person's and so on. And there are a variety of different ways to do that. System one might just be the sense that the other person doesn't have anything. You sort of have this <laughs> inkling of behind, you know, it's not quite clear what's behind that intuition but you just have some sense that maybe it's something about their body posture or there's something odd about their past betting behavior. And that, I think, is a, maybe a good example of, okay, on one side, you've got this intuition, and on the other side, you've got that, some of that more reflective computing almost process where you're thinking about, yeah. okay, this is what, what's rational to do. And that's a good example because I would say system one is that person doesn't have anything. System two is, well, how am I now going to bet or play given that that person doesn't have anything. System one is kind of giving you that intuition, that bit of information, but then you can, but then when you plug it into that kind of calculus and that math, that becomes, that moves over to system two. And that's, that's a kind of an example of how system one and system two interact, right? It's not, you're not always system one, you're not always system two. You're, you're, the two systems are constantly interacting and communicating with each other. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, right. That's a good point. Because then you can have some intuition and then, you accept that intuition is true, then you're like, all right, what's next? But you can also get up and find yourself in situations where you think, I should be folding this hand or something like this, given 
the expected value of my cards, but I just feel like the other person doesn't have anything. And that's where you're in a little bit more of a, a battle, if you will, between these two different kinds of thinking. Yeah. I mean, I would say to clarify here, and I might be getting it wrong just because you haven't, because now you, you've admitted you haven't read the book, so I can push you on it. <laughs> I would think there would be this point where there, there would never be a simultaneous battle because as soon as the battle's going on, you're already in system two. As soon as you start deliberating, like system two is this idea of the amount of attention you're giving. As soon as there's a kind of deliberation or a consideration of multiple reasons, you're, you're already in system two. So the, the, the battle is, do I let what system information, what system one information, what intuitions, gut senses, kind of things I'm not reflecting on, what information is then coming into my system two deliberation? That's the, that's the interaction. But there wouldn't be, we, we wouldn't want to say, you know, system one is when you follow your heart and system two is when you follow your brain. They're both brains, but it's just, it's one is the kind of background non intentional processing and the other one is that really deliberate focus um yeah, that's, that's yeah, yeah. the way that i'm reading it yeah i think you're, you're right that it's not like you have in plato two different parts of the soul sort yeah. of wrestling each other that's not really what's going on but i suppose the battle is you have this output from system one and yes. this output from system two and then now you're deliberating what do i do so that's a, i think that's a good clarification it's not a, not the sort of platonic model where there's some battle over the self, but there is a sense in which, okay, now you, you can get different outputs from different style of thinking, and then you've got to make sense of what to do next. Yeah, which is how I know I've studied too much ancient philosophy, because I'm reading contemporary psychology and going, well, how does this compare to Plato? You know, how, is the, <laughs> what is the, how does this fit into, into Plato's conception of the soul? So some important points here. I mean, first of all, that's cool. I think that's interesting. But that, that's, that's like a good takeaway. It's a good like kind of, I don't know, maybe like a, kind of a TED talk or a quick YouTube video level of knowledge. It's an interesting, it's an interesting thing to know that we have the system one and the system two. But there are some, I would say some deeper implications of this that influence actually the way we live. So the first one I would say is, is system two is lazy and it will defer to system one wherever possible. And an example of this from the book that if you're listening, I'll, I'll have you follow along. Maybe you've heard this one before, maybe not. But it's an example of a quick, quick, Math question says a, a ball and a bat cost a dollar and ten cents together. The bat costs one dollar more than the ball. How much does the ball cost? Blank. Consider. The correct answer is five cents, but most of us jump to ten cents. So most of us think, well, if they're together, they're they, it's a dollar and ten cents together. Well, then, and the bat costs one dollar more than the ball. Well, then the ball costs ten cents. But in that case, the, the bat would cost a dollar and ten cents. That would be a dollar and twenty cents. It would be too much. So most of us just make that mistake. Uh, when really it's a but if you if you sat down and actually did the math, it's pretty clear that it's five cents. It's five cents for the ball, a dollar and five cents for the bat, that's a dollar and ten cents. So the question is like, well, why are we making that kind of mistake? Why are people stumbling there? And we're stumbling there because we're we're relying on system one, or rather, system one is answering the question for us first. And then it's this, kind of, it's this kind of law of conservation of system two, which is that if system one can do it, I'll trust it. And so system one, or I'll have, it, I'll have system one do the work. So system one runs through the problem. It gets you, you know, how much does the ball cost? System one says 10 cents. That's wrong. But if you just keep moving along your day, 
you, you wouldn't know the difference. So what you have to do is actually have to stop. You have to engage system two and say, d write down on a piece of paper, do some of the math, think about it, and you'll get this different answer. And so in our life is not made up of little riddles like that. That's not the important point. The important point is that in a kind of energy conservation model, right? It's like the law of least resistance or something like this. It is that our minds will use the path that is effective, that is the least amount of energy. So that means that, that we, will, we will defer to system one as much as possible in terms of A, not engaging system two, and then B, believing system one by the time things get to system two. So I'll, I'll jump into that, that next point. So, so the first point is that we, we will stay in system one as much as possible because system two is hard. It's hard to pay attention to something. But then the second implication of this, which I think is the same kind of idea of conservation of energy, is that by the time things get to system two, system one has already influenced system two or has already, it's not like I'm, I'm in system one, okay, that's not good enough, I switch over and now I'm just pure system two and I, I don't have any of this bias. By the time I get to system two, system one has already influenced it. And your poker example, Caleb, was a great example. Because that's that idea of like, I get this gut reaction. Hey, he doesn't have anything. He's bluffing. You know, he doesn't got it. And then by the time I'm in system two, I'm probably already incorporating that into my, into my internal calculus and my decision-making criteria as I decide my move. So, so it's not like I've switched. Well, I need to pay attention here. I'm going to be in system two the whole time. System one is actually influencing system two. And there's an example from this from the book that I really, really like. I thought it was really fascinating. So, so an example here is that this is this idea of cognitive ease, which is that system two is more positive towards things that are easy for it to do, or that it has judged to be easy. And so, you know, this this idea is that you know you could like your routine, you could find it more relaxing to be spending time in your own house. It's like as long as system two is around things that it find it finds comfortable. It's not working that hard. If system two isn't working that hard. System two is happy. If system one can be doing as much as possible, then by the time you get to system two, if system two doesn't have to work that hard, it, it likes it and judges it positively. And so an example of, of where this idea of cognitive ease and system one influences system two, an idea, an example of where that comes into effect, they ran this psychological experiment where they asked participants to describe situations where they had displayed a certain quality. So let's say, you know, write down three times when you were kind. And then they asked participants to self-rate themselves as being, as having that quality. So do you think you're a very kind person or not? And people were more likely to rate themselves, let's use the example of kind. They're more likely to rate themselves as being kind if they were asked to provide a short list. So if they had to write down three times, because that was very easy to come up with examples of being kind. But if they were asked to produce a long list, you could say, give me 10, 20 times when you were kind, even if they wrote down eight times when they were kind, when they got to the self-rating, they would rate themselves as not a very nice person, as not a very kind person. And part of the reasoning there is that because system two had to work very hard, you're, you're actually, system two is less likely to judge that, that thing positively it has an actual kind of a bias or aversion associated with that, with that effort. So it was effortful to produce examples of yourself being kind, so you must not be kind, even if you produced more examples. 
And so that's that example, I think, here of, of again, pulling that back. That was, that's an example of how system one influences system two. So I, I, I like that idea. I mean, another example they have here is that people are more likely to believe something if it was written in bold text and it was easier to read. So, you know, the, the example in the book is they gave two dates that could have been Adolf Hitler's birthday and both were incorrect dates, but people were more likely to believe the date that was in bold. And this idea is that it was less effort to move through to move through that system one. So by the time by the time you were in system two, you were associating it with less effort, and system two had to had to work less hard to add that to the reasoning. That's my run at it. What do you think? Hmm. I think that there certainly is this influence of cognitive ease and thinking. It would be somewhat surprising to me if it was true that the cognitive ease explanation is the for some of these biases is the main thing that is going on but but I'm not sure I think I think I would be sort of agnostic about that kind of that kind of explanation but that being said the, the main idea that how difficult it is to come to a judgment is going to influence your thinking in some ways is it seems clearly clearly right to me. Yeah. So a little bit of skepticism about I mean, I, I kind of always feel this way sometimes about about social science. I don't understand it thoroughly enough to eliminate kind of conflating causes or other explanations because when you're working with people. I guess people they 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 attempt to control for these. Yeah, yeah. But I think that I think that point remains about this idea of, you know, how hard system two has to work is influenced by how much of the task was able to be completed by by system one. And so the 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 point that I'm trying to pull from there is this is not these are not dichotomies. These are not they were the point that I, I I take from it, these are not dichotomous systems where either I'm playing poker or I'm scrolling through my phone on my couch. I'm either doing math homework or I'm, you know, reading Ulysses or something or reading Ulysses would also be hard. I'm not doing math. That's, that's how I relax. That's my system. I'm not, you know, doing math homework or going for a walk where I kind of zone out. It's, it's this idea that there's this constant, you're constantly switching between these two and they're influencing each other, partly through communication of information, like in the poker example. And sometimes we don't even catch that information came from system one instead of system two. And then partly also in this communication of, of, of effort, this relationship of effort, which is that, you know, if system one can't do all the work, system two is going to have to work harder. And then system two is, is going to associate or negatively judge that, that associated effort will bias towards that. And I think this is really interesting. I, I mean, I love that. I love that thought. That for me was the key takeaway. It's not this idea of one or two systems but how these systems are interacting with each other and that sometimes in unnoticeable interaction. And so from there, the, the majority of, of the book then digs into how the interaction between these two systems causes our biases and poor thinking. I want to give one other example, again, about how this, how this biasing works is, is there's this example in psychology of anchoring. So this is the psychological phenomenon where humans tend to overweight the first piece of information provided to them. So if I see a TV and it costs $1,000 and then the TV goes on sale for $750, 
I'll proceed. I'll be like, wow, what a great deal. I can get this TV for cheap. Even if, you know, if I'd walked into the store and the same TV was $500 and it didn't, you know, I wasn't associating with the sale, I, I might not perceive the $500 as a good deal. And you see this all the time. I think we get this in kind of like Amazon and stuff like that. Like sometimes there'll be some companies that even artificially just have high prices and are kind of perpetually on this, you know, 20%, 30% sale just to do this, just to provide this anchoring effect. And so the high price anchors your expectations, which then leads you to see the lower price is a good deal. And that's, again, your system one interfering with your system two. The anchoring is, is occurring at that system one level. That's your kind of first impression. And then well, by the time you're deliberating on purchasing it, that anchoring is already coming into the decision-making process. And it becomes, well, it's a good deal, or well, it could be more expensive. And we, unless we're really careful to pull those apart and say, well, what is this, you know, what is this actually worth in practice? We we will incorporate that gut reaction, that intuition, that anchored knowledge into our decision making process in a way that can make a, a poor decision. We can, you know, buy a TV that's worth five hundred dollars for seven fifty and think it's a good deal because it's twenty five percent off, right? Yeah, yeah. And that's the rest of the book. Any any other thoughts on Kahneman's system one, system two idea before we get into the connections with stoicism? Well, I think the example of anchoring is really good and quite strong. My sense is that over the past decade, there have been significant challenges to work in social psychology. And I'm pretty sure that anchoring stuff has held up really well. And it does seem to be a place where Kahneman and Tversky's model holds up more nicely. So I have a lot less skepticism about that than like the stuff about fonts being bold and priming and so on. But the, I think that's a, I mean, that's just a good example. And it's an example that influences, you know, your practical life, whether you're on the consuming side or on the marketing side. So important to keep in mind, but we should get, we should definitely get into the connection with stoicism because I think that's where things really start to get interesting. Yeah. This is where it heats up. So Let's that, go. So, so, so that's the model. And so reading this book really got me excited because I, I saw all these parallels to Stoic psychology, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty deep in the Stoicism stuff. I, I'm pretty sure if I read a, you know, if I, if I watched a Netflix show, I'd probably see the parallels to Stoic psychology. But here in particular, I really do think it stands. And quick primer on Stoic psychology for those listening, you know, Caleb, obviously, you know, this is, this is familiar grounds for us, but, but we're going we're gonna to do a quick refresher. So Stoic psychology is this idea that as we navigate the world, we non-reflectively receive impressions about the world. We then assent to those impressions as true or false, and these impressions become beliefs if we, if we take them to be true. This assent can happen consciously or unconsciously, and then the beliefs then motivate our actions or the beliefs then cause our motivation. So if I if I think it is a good idea to buy the TV, I receive an impression that that $750 TV is a good deal. And you know you should buy things that are good deals. I assent to that as true. I can either deliberate on that consciously or not. And then I receive, that becomes a belief, I should buy this TV. And then I will experience psychological motivation towards that, whether that's you know driving across town, whether that's just you know pulling out my credit card. And so in order to live our lives well, which, you know, the Stoics call living in accordance with nature or live in a way that reflects the reality of things, we want to recognize this, psycho this psychological process and apply effort to only assent to those impressions that are true. So I only want to say it is a good deal for the TV if it's a good deal for the TV. It's a, 
that that's the idea is is I, I want to I want to only assent to true impressions, which means I want to deliberate carefully because those impressions come in all kinds of forms, true and false. It's a lot of work when we're starting out to even realize that we that just because we have an impression doesn't mean it's true. Like a lot of the work when you begin stoicism is actually just like pulling that gap between impression and belief apart to reveal that middle space, that deliberation space and say, look, your gut reaction doesn't immediately have to become a belief. You can actually sit and stew on that and, and reflect on it. And this, so that, that's one thing is like there's that, that real turning point of stoicism of pulling those things apart. Another thing is that the psychological process of reflection, ascent, belief, and then impulse, that motivation, this is what Epictetus famously says is up to us. So when the Stoics talk about the dichotomy of control, they're talking about the psychological process. Everything else is not up to us. So to live well for the Stoics is to master this process and only believe what's true. This has ethical benefits in the Stoic view, and you know, we have plenty of episodes about that if, if people want to listen to those. But it also has you know, pretty immediately the added benefits of reducing suffering, anxiety, dependency, and these other negative things that come with false beliefs. So, you know, if we, if we think that it matters what other people think or say about us, we're going to anxiously try to impress them. So that's an example of, of how just eliminating a false belief or taking time to reflect on, is that belief really true or is that more just a gut reaction? That's going to have a, a major benefit in our lives, both emotionally and then ultimately ethically as well for the Stoics. So that's a quick Stoic psychology primer. And in terms of the connection, I... I I see thinking fast and slow as having more in common with Stoicism than not. I think, if anything, although the terminology is a bit off, it's been 2,000 years, it seems almost like a modern codification of what the Stoics first identified. It seems like the Stoics, you know, if we use this analogy, they, they discovered this thing and they called it something and then Kahneman or contemporary psychologists came along and they were still talking about the same thing. They were just maybe revealing, oh, it's it, the, you know, this artifact, this this rock we pulled out, it looks a little different, or maybe we'll call it something else, but we're all still talking about the same thing. You know, the Stoics did identify the, I think the Stoics did identify this system one, system two thinking. They did identify the relationship between system one, system two, and they, they rightly pointed to it as the, the key mental model that is involved if you're going to live properly and not fall victim to a lot of the cognitive biases that human fall, falls humans fall victim to. So to combine the language of both and focus on the similarities, using Kahneman's language, this is how I would describe Stoic psychology. I would say Stoic psychology is primarily about A, recognizing that we have a system one and system two. So recognizing this fact. And then second, employing system two carefully in moments that matter. So this means avoiding system two, endorsing the impressions of system one just because it's easy or requires less effort or we don't even realize these impressions are happening, we're just assenting immediately. And then training ourselves in logic to identify when system one has biased system two, even after we've pulled things into system two. So again, let's take the TV example. The stoic example is A, that's, a, that's an important decision, so that needs to be system two automatically. You can't just go through life on autopilot. You, you've gotta, you've gotta think carefully about these, these decisions you're making. And then second, you've got to train yourself in logic. You've got to train yourself in sound skills of reasoning and employ some, some you know, cognitive strategies to, to actually to 
reflect accurately on the situation once you're in system two, because you can be in system two and make a terrible decision. But you, you, you want to then employ these strategies. We talk a lot about these, the dichotomy of control, the view from above, memento mori, contemplation of the sage. You employ these strategies, decomposition. You employ these strategies to then say, when I'm in system two, make sure I'm getting it right and that system one hasn't biased me. So we study philosophy to provide system two with the knowledge it requires to make good judgments. Epictetus talks about this a lot. When you receive an impression, it's like a, it's like a gold coin and you need a standard of judgment to weigh it by, you know, or you need to bite into it to, 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 take, to make sure it's real gold. And we think about that. It's this idea of like, even though if you pull things into system two, in the Stoic view, you can still be in system two. You can be assenting intentionally. You can make a space between impression and ascent and, and ascent after reflection, and you can still just make terrible judgment. So <laughs> Stoic philosophy gives you the, the rules of thumbs, the standard of judgment, right? If we take the dichotomy of control, it's this idea, well, Man. you think, wow, my life is going to be ruined because of this situation. And the dichotomy of control just says, well, this is the standard. Is like, is that a thing that's up to you? Is that a thing that has to do with virtue and vice? Well, no, it's, it's, it's my reputation. Well, then that's a false impression. It's a standard of judgment to judge that impression by and, and kind of test it. You know, my life's going to be ruined if I can't get by this TV. If I don't get this, if I don't get this great deal. Well, that falls when tested against the standard of judgment that Stoicism provides in its actual philosophy. So that is how I would combine the language of the two. And I think they're really, really similar. I think, you know, again, I, I, I'm in this kind of beginner intermediate level with this, with contemporary psychology, I recognize that's not my field, but it strikes me as very similar. What do you think, Caleb? Yeah, well, I think there's a, you could think of system one as impressions. You have the quote that Kahneman literally says, part of system one generates impressions. When endorsed by system two, these become beliefs. And that's that's a nice mapping. There's maybe also the thought that System one is sort of this implicit, very fast thinking. So maybe you quickly have an impression, reflect on it, immediate, very in, in a sense or not, depending on past behavior or something of that sort. Maybe that's another kind of way in which you know I might not say that system one is completely just maps onto impressions being generated and so on. But more broadly, is about this implicit, fast, almost intuitive style of thinking. And that when you add to it with a picture of Stoic psychology, you can see how that kind of thinking often causes problems in some circumstances as a benefit in others and why it is you know, essential to pause Think about how this system two deliberative style of thought enters the picture and how it's going to be influenced by all that past thinking that has already occurred and so on. So I think, mm -hmm. as you said, just because system two is in the picture, it doesn't mean you're going to be free and you know out to roam on the pastures of perfect thought or anything of that sort. But I think this, this mapping is, I think, I think quite nice and you have we talked about mental models last episode we recorded and i would say look even if this met, doesn't map on perfectly into how the mind works today this picture of system one system two it's exceptionally useful and i think does 
enrich this picture of Stoic psychology too, and and we can think about okay, how do our patterns of thought, how do they fall short because of these factors we're discussing, and how do they work well because of some of these the different features of the of these systems, I suppose. So this, I suppose, there's a lot there. Yeah, totally. I mean, I, I think that's it. Is that this idea of mental models? And again, this was from last episode we we chatted about, but I I, I we were talking about the importance of. There's an importance of, of thinking about how your mind works, not just not just because it's true or false, but because there could actually be a practical benefit to understanding what you're working with, right? Like I, I don't know if you're if you're bouncing a basketball, it, it if if the skill is using the basket is playing basketball, well then understanding how the basketball works is helpful to play basketball. Or it's helpful to bounce effectively, understand its weight through the air and things like that. So if the stoic goal is to, you know, make good decisions, live with knowledge, then a model of how our brain works is really important for then driving the car, right? Then then navigating these situations, right? And so that's 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 and I think there's a lot of evidence here for because of the similarities between the stoic model and the Contemporary and this contemporary system one system two that there is a you know the Stoics were were on to something not just on to something but I think actually actually right in a way that makes a lot of their strategies viable today but not just kind of historical artifacts and to to argue for this I wanted to go a step further and take Kahneman's detailed list of system one's powers so what system one does and then go through and and talk about those in relation to Stoicism, and we'll see in detail the similarities. So this is from page 105 of Thinking Fast and Slow. Kahneman says, and these are, this is, quote, this is direct language. So these are this is what System 1 does. Generates impressions. When endorsed by System 2, these become beliefs. It operates automatically and quickly. It executes skill responses. So you can think of this like a, like a hockey player or a basketball player or anything that you've trained yourself in to do in kind of a non-reflective way successfully. It distinguishes the surprising from the normal. It infers and invents causes and intentions. It neglects ambiguity and suppresses doubt. It is biased to believe and confirm. It overweights low probabilities. And it responds more strongly to losses than to gains. So these are some of the, this is what system one does according to Kahneman. And I wanted to go through each of these and, and compare to stoicism. Well, that first one, I mean, you already mentioned it, Caleb, generates impressions when endorsed by system two, these become beliefs. This is, you know, this is exactly the stoic model, which is this idea that our brain generates impressions when we encounter situations and we need to be reflected on and, and, and when endorsed, these become beliefs. I think you're actually right here that, that there's, there's a little bit of slippage here because I would argue kind of in the stoic model, we can form beliefs. Maybe Kahneman's even wrong here. I mean, we can form beliefs without going into system two. If system two is like intentional and deliberate, I think we can form, it depends on what you define a belief as. But I think you can, through not through exposure, certainly, have non-intentional belief formation. Like we take the example of anchoring, right? That idea that $750 is a good deal is a belief. It's, it's a belief that we now, I'm not sure. Could be an impression still depends on depends on if you're if you act on it or not but anyway that's a small point this second idea it operates automatically and quickly 
you know, impressions and stoicism are generated without intention. That's one of the interesting things that I think that when people talk about, well, what's up to you is your mind, you know, the Stoics point out, well, no, what's up to you is how you reflect on your impressions because you don't actually control the impressions you receive, right? You don't actually control if somebody, you know, honks their horn. You're not, you, you can't be like, I choose not to hear that. You don't have any control over that. You have a control over actually the way you respond to those impressions. So the impressions are a type of mental faculty that is, that is automatic, uh, but so automatic in the sense that it's not something you intentionally generate. It, gener it generates without, you can't, even the sage can't choose not to have impressions, right? Mm -hmm. System one executes skill responses. I think this is an interesting one. I don't think it's contrasting with stoicism at all, but it's this idea of a kind of, it's maybe this, this view of skillful action taking place less reflectively than, than, than reflectively, less intentionally than intentionally. I think the physical examples are really helpful of like athletes and things like that. But I also think in the stoic view of how the sages can never make a mistake. And the sage is somebody who has perfect knowledge. And the idea is that somebody with perfect knowledge can't make a mistake. And one of the views there is that somebody with perfect knowledge would always be skillfully navigating the world, even if they were in system one. Maybe I'm reaching there, but that's the way that I think about it. Even if they're unintentional and non-reflective, if they have perfect knowledge, they would still be skillfully navigating the world. No, I think that's a, I think that's a useful connection. I think, so another example is of chess players, expert chess players, when they're seeing a board, they can just see a board, see what the right move is. And there's not any amount of explicit thought. It's almost just pure pattern recognition. They don't need to deliberate. I expect sages would be pretty similar. I mean, you even have the story from Epictetus about Floris and Agrippinus. And Floris comes up to Agrippinus and he says, you know, I'm going to go hang out with Nero and play sycophant to his story. Should I go? And Agrippinus says, sure. And Agrippinus says, you know, why don't, why don't you come along? And Agrippinus literally says, because I didn't even deliberate about it. I, I know that's, you know, not what I do. That's not who I am. So I imagine that's a, one picture. This is, again, just another, um, another mental model is the sage or really anyone building a skill is almost transferring first, like this awkward, reflective, deliberate thought into these intuitive responses that are habitual parts of their character. Yeah. I always thought that story was funny, but like I, I like it in the system one, system two example because it's this idea of look that I didn't even need to go to system two for that. I, I didn't even need to think about it, right? Like it didn't even that didn't I didn't need to like turn on the horsepower to get there, you know? Which which is like so for me there's no like there's not even anything on the table, there's nothing to think about. Uh -huh. No, I love it. And so another one, just the system one distinguishes the surprising from the normal. And I, I, for me, this is about pattern recognition. But I think it connects the Stoicism in an interesting way. And System 1 actually does a lot of the work here that this can sometimes be confusing to people because we talk in Stoicism about kind of proto-passions, passions, um, proto-passions or are these things that even the sage will experience. They're the kind of these kind of movements that come along with the impression. So the example is that in you know, the classic Stoic example is like even the sage is going to flinch when lightning strikes but the, but then after the lightning strikes the sage isn't going to be cowering and fearful and afraid it is going to be kind of a reflexive flinch and that's very different from a normal passion which is something that's 
not reflexive, but ongoing corresponds with a belief about how, you know, how terrible this lightning storm is, how my life is in danger, how I'm very afraid, things like this. So I like this idea of system one is really good at catching things that stand out, you know? And I think of that in terms of proto-passion, this idea, you know, you're walking and somebody jumps in front of, something jumps in front of you. You know, even the normal stoic is going to go, oh, what is that? You know, kind of like, whoa, what's going mm -hmm. on? Have a kind of proto-passion if it's, if it's something, you know, look like it might be a tiger or something, but then that's still just system one and it would be a system two mistake to then, or a kind of a deliberative mistake to then turn that into a full-blown passion. The next one is really, really interesting. And that's that idea that in system one infers and invents causes and intentions. So in Stoicism, our impressions is where we generate the stories that, that we reflect upon. And these are the invented, this is where these stories, these stories produce the invented causes and intentions that often make us suffer. So this idea of, you know, I don't know, somebody... Somebody doesn't text you back for a day and you think, wow, this person hates me. What did I do wrong? Why are they mad at me? And this is, this is, this is a story, right? This is an invented, and in, to use again Kahneman's language, an invented cause and intention. The, ca the reason they're not responding to me is because they're mad at me or they, they're trying to get back at me and hurt my feelings or something like this, right? And so... In Kahneman's picture, that happens at the system one level, but for Stoicism too, that happens at the impression level, right? We generate this impression, and then it's the Stoic's job to say, well, no, I'm not going to, I'm not going to assent to you right away. I'm going to reflect. There's maybe, maybe they're just busy, maybe something came up, maybe their phone died. I don't really have evidence to make this decision. Even if it was the case, do I really want to be up, that upset about somebody who gets mad at me for no good reason? You know, you, you kind of start introducing, you, you deconstruct the story you made up. And so for me, I, I see these, I see these two like oh, totally overlapping in a really cool way. The next, the next one here is that system one, according to Kahneman, ne neglects ambiguity and suppresses doubt. And so in Stoicism, this is great. Stoicism, Stoicism, I think, agrees. In Stoicism, our default state is not a skeptical one. So our default state is to actually assent to the impressions we receive, to trust. So part of what we do in Stoicism is we cultivate a skepticism. We cultivate the capacity to be self-reflective, to not take things for granted, to not trust things on the surface level. We actually, we have an episode, earlier episode on skepticism. The Stoics actually are really similar to the skeptics, except they then go on to, to believe things that have good evidence, right? But, mm -hmm. but this idea that, that system one is not good at doubting things really corresponds with the stoic idea that like you got to be really careful about impressions because if you don't intervene on them you'll just tend to believe them right and so i've got three more i mean i can't i think it's really cool here first is this idea that system one is biased to believe and confirm and so that that connects with this idea of, of above right we'll assent to impressions unless we intervene with effort and system two requires that it requires that that deliberate effort and attention and then the other two are just kind of biases system one tends towards. So system one overweights low probabilities and system one responds more, more strongly to losses than to gains. And these are just examples of the kind of stories we come up with in our impressions or the way our impressions tend to form, right? People, unless you're a sage, your impression, the impressions you receive probably have these manufactured stories that tend to lean towards things that are not likely to be the case or lean towards focusing on the negative situation rather than 
maybe the silver lining. Yeah, yeah. Um, I think just to add some detail to that, my recent conversation with Randolph Nessie on evolution and uh, anxiety maps on to that thought nicely, where Nessie argues that the reason humans are so prone to anxiety is that you can think of our systems, our mental systems that produce anxious feelings, similar to smoke detectors. And do you want a smoke detector that is maybe a little bit too sensitive so long as it ensures that you are always out of the house when there is a fire? Yeah, probably. And if you think from the evolutionary sense, humans who are more anxious than not are often, so long as they act on it, you know, all 10 times and the anxiety was justified that one time are going to be more likely to survive than humans who are completely placid. And nine times out of 10, they're right that there's nothing rustling in the bushes, but on the 10th time, there was in fact a tiger and they got chomped on. So I think that's that maps on really nicely and also sort of shows, I think, how these, by saying something system one, doesn't automatically mean that it's useless or totally misguided, but that there's got to be some kind of reflection or a thought on, okay, like what is this, what are these heuristics serving? Are they useful even if they're not 100% accurate? Do they need to be fine tuned more and so on? Yes, a couple of great points there. But the thing I wanted to follow up on, Caleb, was that idea of like, you know, system one isn't always bad. Yeah, I think sometimes even stoicism, we can give across that impression or in this discussion, give across the, the system one is dumb, it's intuitive, but, it, but it's serving a purpose, right? And you think about that on the other, just go the other direction, right? Imagine somebody who's kind of amotivational, right? Somebody who doesn't really receive any impressions about value or things mattering. That's not a good state to be in either. It's just about, yeah, with the smoke alarm analogy, it's just, do you get out of the house or do you mute the smoke alarm? And a life where you run out of the house every time your, your sensitive smoke alarm goes off is not a good life. But a life where you turn, you pull the batteries out either, that's not, that's not good either. Yeah. This extended metaphor was brought to you by Stoa Conversation. I, I think it did work. I think it was a good one. So takeaways and reflections, my two, my two thoughts, and then happy to interested in what, what you think here, Caleb. I mean, first of all, I'm just jazzed. I just think it's really fun. This is not a point. This is just a preamble. I just think it's really fun when contemporary psychology connects with, with stoicism. And you know, it just makes me feel like oh, I'm, I'm triangulating in on the nature of human existence and reality through, you know, through different points and different contexts. Because I don't think Kahneman is a stoic or is you know, certainly not based in ancient Greek philosophy. But the, the, the two key points I took away that I'm going to bring into my own life and how I live and navigate the world. First is it made me think about the interaction between system one and two. So going back to Stoic language, this is the idea that we don't reflect on our impressions in a vacuum. By the time we've formed an impression, it's probably already influenced our reasoning in subtle ways that we need to be careful of. So it, it, it's often easy to think, well, in Stoicism, you get an impression of something and then you sit down and you reflect upon it. And again, having this kind of dichotomy between the system one and system two, to use that language. And that's just like not the case. And I think Kahneman's right about that. By the time I've gotten that impression, I've been biased by it. I've been motivated towards a certain thing. So we need to be extra cautious of that, that we're not reflecting in a vacuum. 
and be conscious of how that might be biasing our reflection because we can only ever reflect with the tools we have and with the beliefs we have in the moment. So we need to be careful about how that's going. The second takeaway is that system two is effortful. So deliberation, attention, focus is effortful. And what I mean by effort is like, we often talk about it being hard, but really it's this almost this like, almost like kind of this like metabolic level, like this caloric level. Like the, your brain has to use energy to be effortful or to be, sorry, to be attentive. It has to use effort and energy to be attentive. And we know it's difficult to reflect on our impressions, but we often describe that as kind of a cognitive habit. We don't often frame it around the physical effort of it, like it's an actual athletic pursuit. And this is why it's harder. And first, in terms of self-forgiveness, this could be why it's harder to be a stoic when you're tired, when you're stressed, when you're fatigued, when you're hungry, when you've been under a lot of difficult situations lately. The stoic's guidance is to do this pulling into system two and do this careful reflection. And that's just going to be difficult to do if you're fatigued. It's going to be, if you, you know, it's going to be way, way harder if you haven't been getting a good night's sleep, if you haven't been taking care of your body, but if you've also been requiring system two really intensely because, you know, something stressful has been going on that's been requiring your focus and attention. So I don't know, a little bit of self-forgiveness, a little bit of leeway there, conceptual contextualization where, hey, sometimes we might be worse stoics than others, but if it, if it sometimes is harder to actually pull that attention towards the situations that require it. And we wouldn't say, well, I had a bad run today. Like I, like I ran in a vacuum and be like, well, I did a long run the day before. So my run today was painful and hard. And we, so we make those connections, but we often don't do that with our mind. The other thing of that is that, well, when you, when you make this kind of F, this, this physical metaphor or realize that this attention is actually kind of a, a physical process you also realize the importance of training your attention and building up that skill and that muscle through mindful mindfulness meditation and through other practices and exercises more generally. And that's the goal is to, you know, Caleb, you're, you're, I know, I know that you're a runner and, and the idea is like, you know, if you had a bust out of 10 K right now, I'm sure you could just get off the table. You could just go and it would be no big deal, right? If I did a 10 K, it would be a big deal for, it would be a big deal for me, right? It would be, I would have to get the ambulance, get the ambulance ready. But the, the, so the idea there is that your kind of baseline is increased, right? Your, your exercise baseline is increased because you run regularly. And so if there was a moment where you had to do four 10 Ks in a row, if you had to do a week of 10 Ks, you might actually be able to do that where I would not, I would get an injury on the second day. And so when we think about, well, it's, it's hard to be focused and stoic when you're stressed, when you're tired, when you're fatigued. Well, what's in your control? What's up to you? It's actually raising that baseline through mindfulness meditation, through practice in the moments where you do have a moment. And then when things get bad, you're actually, you're, you're applying that attention with an improved baseline. Yeah, those are two great points in terms of, you know, takeaways. There's that point between about interaction between the system one, system two, both of them can corrupt each other, I think, or improve each other. And there's the feedback between the two. You're always perfecting both your intuitive responses and your deliberation. And as you say, and sort of in the, in the second point, I suppose, that improving, especially deliberation, takes intentional effort and practice and improving that baseline 
whether that's managing some of these external factors about you know your energy levels, your health, your environment, whatever, but also training that mental muscle through meditation, just through deliberating, is is essential. So I think those are those are two excellent points. Great. Any other any other key takeaways for you? Yeah. So I was, I was thinking about this. I think one is one takeaway is sort of on this thought about okay we have these two modes of thought when's one more reliable than the other what can we learn about that and so there's one one paper of Kahneman's that I really like is with a psychologist named Gary Klein and it's called a failure to disagree one reason I like it is that initially there are two psychologists Kahneman's more on the cognitive biases side and Klein is more on the side of, I think it's called naturalist decision-making, which is essentially you could think of it as he's more of a pro-intuition kind of guy. So on the surface level, you have Kahneman, pro-system two, Klein, pro-system one. They got together to hash this out, their positions, and came to the conclusion that they didn't really disagree, which I think is a, a lesson in of itself. It's both good that they got together to discuss their apparent disagreements and then determined, like so many other apparent disagreements, that there wasn't much actual disagreement. But in terms of the actual content of their paper, I think you know, when Klein thinks about intuition, he's thinking about decisions that experts make where they're in fields where they get fast feedback, success is clearly defined, and so on. So he looks at a lot of firefighters, police officers, so firefighter chiefs who just have a strong sense that they need to get their entire crew out of the building. They can't explain why, that's just what they're doing. And then they call that order and they realize, yes, there's something wrong about that building. On reflection, they, now they can see it, now that everyone's out and the building collapses. But in the moment, they just relied on that intuition. Another, I think, example is a police officer who goes into doing his ordinary affairs, goes into some gas station, has a sense that something is completely wrong and leaves. And then 10 minutes later, there's a, there's a holdup at that gas station. Someone tries to rob the gas station. And in reflection, oh, he saw someone in the corner of his eye who was wearing a massive jacket when it was extreme, extremely hot. And it just seemed exceptionally suspicious. He just had that intuition. Well, why do these sorts of people have reliable intuitions? It's because they're in situations where they get usually fast feedback. Successes are you know, pretty clearly defined. It's not some system where you have to wait you know, years before you realize, does, does this investment pay off? Does this decision pay off? You get that fast, that fast time loop. And then also police officers, athletes are another great case. Firefighters, they're just putting hours into their work, right? So they have so many different cases. So if you think about this in the poker example I started with, you know, I think pretty there is this debate in poker about how well can you actually read people or is it mostly just nonsense? And I think there is something to the thought that, yeah, some people actually are better at reading others, but especially when you start poker, most people, I think, learn their intuitions about when others are bluffing or not especially when they get into the position where they're you know, playing hundreds of people, strangers, and so on, their intuitions are just not that reliable. Over time, you might be able to fine-tune them, but you have that fact that, okay, 
the number of people I'm meeting is much, you know, much larger set people than my intuitions have been trained on. So I think that's a that's a little bit of that's a little bit of an aside on I think, you know, okay, now that we have this two these two styles of thought, how can we think about ensuring that what system one produces is accurate, what system two does, you know, accords with the best parts of system one or tweaks system system one when you when you need to. So there's so so the way I'm understanding the kill is there's this idea that you know when you say intuition you can mean a lot of things and when you take the the intuition or the gut reaction of a skilled person or an expert or maybe even gut reactions in situations where we maybe have context that's different than you know some intuitions are better than others and the intuitions of skilled experts maybe are the kinds of things we should believe and put into our system to deliberation or even just like act on immediately Mm-hmm. But then some other intuitions in poker, you realize that like, hey, these are actually, I'm actually pretty bad at these. So there's kind of a difference between those two. And so, you know, don't just throw intuition out, but spend some time figuring out which ones work and which ones don't. Is that is that what you mean? Yeah, I think so. You know, mostly I'm using intuitions to talk about sort of the system one, I suppose. You went on, recently you went on Rational Reminders podcast, chat about investing. Investing is a classical case where human intuition yeah is just not going to work. It's not going to be reliable. You don't get fast feedback, usually. Most people don't have the requisite amount of training data, if you will. They don't have those that same amount of experience someone does when they're in a practical environment, quickly getting feedback on what's working, what doesn't. So I think that's a classic example where you don't want to trust your initial impressions. Instead, you want to pause, sit through, rely on formal systems, and so on. And I think, and I think this just both as individuals and as society, we can be better at identifying when should we rely on system one type processes or when are, in fact, these more explicit reasoning processes going to, going to work better. Yeah. I love it. I think that's, I think that's a great point. Awesome. Cool. Uh, Yeah. I think this is, this is really fruitful. I hope others find this, this division between different styles of thought, useful. And I think it's especially useful just for Stoics thinking about, you know, how, how can we think better? Part of that question is, you know, what are these different styles of thought, these different systems of thought? When do they work? When don't they? And how can we fine tune ourselves so we can all become like Agropinus and no longer need to deliberate? Yeah. And anybody else, any other recommendations, books people think hit that good intersection between stoicism or, you know, philosophy as a way of life more generally, I'm open for those because this is, it, 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 it was a, it was a good experience kind of pushing myself outside of, outside of that ancient psychology of mind and incorporating some of that contemporary work into it too. It was, it was fun, fun read. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks for putting that together. Cool. Thanks, Kel. Thanks for listening to Stoic Conversations. Please give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify and share it with a friend. And if you'd like to get two meditations from me on Stoic theory and practice a week, just two short emails on whatever I've been thinking about, as well as some of the best resources we found for practicing Stoicism, check out stoaletcher.com. It's completely free. You can sign up for it and then unsubscribe at any time as you wish. If you want to dive deeper still, search 
Stoa in the App Store or Play Store for a complete app with routines, meditations, and lessons designed to help people become more stoic. And I'd also like to thank Michael Levy for graciously letting us use his music. You can find more of his work at ancientliar.com. And finally, please get in touch with us. Send a message to stoa at stoameditation.com if you ever have any feedback, questions, or recommendations. Until next time.